Imagine being present, calm, and connected while creating a family environment where everyone can thrive. Welcome to the I Am Mom Parenting Podcast, providing inspiration and actionable steps to manifest the meaningful and magical life you desire for you and your family. We are your hosts, Dimple Aurora, founder of Mindful Evolution and Shaista Fateli, founder of Thrive Kids. Thank you for sharing the I Am Mom journey with us. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back to the I Am Mom podcast. Today we're going to be talking about infant loss. Infant loss is characterized as a loss of a baby after 20 weeks. We will also be touching upon miscarriage. Both are often painful and traumatic. It is possible to find healthy ways to cope. And today we have very special guest Natasha Virani with us today. Natasha works in an independent school as a middle grades counselor while simultaneously operating her private practice, Love and Light Counseling. And the focus of Natasha's counseling in a private practice as a registered therapeutic counselor has changed over time. She works with women experiencing pregnancy and infant loss, infertility, and stuckness. The evolution of Natasha's direction in counseling stems from her own personal experience with miscarriage, infertility, and infant loss. We are so happy to have you here with us today, Natasha. Thank you. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you for being with us. So, Natasha, I briefly spoke about your personal experience If you could elaborate on that for us and tell us what your personal experience around miscarriage, infertility, and infant loss has been. Sure. Um, I hope you have the time. It's a long story. (laughs) Um, It's actually the story started about uh, 10 years ago when I decided that I was ready to have kids and I talked to my husband and we decided that we were not going to be careful um, when having intercourse. And um, literally the first time we tried, we got pregnant. And um, I remember telling him and it was a special way that I told him. And literally a week later, I started bleeding. And so that was my first experience with miscarriage. And that was really, really hard. I think we had even told my parents too. And um, I just, I didn't understand why that was happening. And I didn't talk to anybody about it because I didn't know that it was common. And so then um, I just kind of, we picked up the pieces and we, we, we let my body go through the process of the miscarriage. And then, and, and for me at that time, it was um, much like a heavier period. And, um, and then, you know, we, we tried again. And again, the next time we tried, we got pregnant. And this time I was a little bit more cautious. And when we went for, because my doctor knew that we had had a miscarriage, he had scheduled, I think, an ultrasound at around eight weeks. And there are 
no words for how it feels to go for an ultrasound and the ultrasound technicians don't tell you anything anyways. They're often kind of abrupt. They're like, oh, your doctor will give you the results. And you're like, but is everything okay? And it's, you think you're going to get answers, but then you don't. Um, but nothing prepared me for her saying, oh, what was the age or what was the conception date or what is your due date? And your baby's supposed to be this many weeks. Oh, oh, I'm seeing something smaller. Oh, uh, your doctor will give you the result. And like, she basically mm. shooed us out of the room and told us that um, she hadn't heard a heartbeat. And so while she didn't tell us that everything was not okay, she also didn't tell us that everything was okay. And this was around um, Christmas holidays. And so my doctor uh, called me um, right before Christmas and said, hey, you know, often, you know, we can have dates wrong. So um, let's try another ultrasound um, in a week. And so I had to go over Christmas thinking I was pregnant um, and go for another ultrasound. And that's when it was very clear that um, there was um, the demise of the fetus and, you know, like things were starting to get even smaller than what they should have been. And so then my doctor said, um, you know, you have a couple options. You can um, take a medication to expedite the um, miscarriage process. Or you can let it pass naturally, or we can have you in for a DNC, but because it's the holidays, that won't happen until January. And I thought, okay, well, let me try and see if um, things will just kind of go naturally. And um, as I went through New Year's, like I still felt pregnant. So I was bloated, um, my breasts were tender. Um, I felt like I had kind of a tummy and I didn't feel great. And so it's a terrible feeling to go through a time where you celebrate a holiday with your family and your friends or you celebrate a brand new year and essentially what I felt like was I was walking around with a dead baby in my body and and I didn't know how to talk about it with anybody because I was feeling pregnant but I wasn't pregnant but I was still pregnant but what was in me was not alive and then the baby wasn't passing like I, I continued to feel pregnant and um, I remember towards the end of January, I called my doctor and I was just in tears. And I said, I don't know what you need to do, but you need to get me into a hospital and you need to get this out of my body because for my own mental health, I can't do this anymore. Um, and so when you do a, a DNC in a hospital, often they will um, look at the material that they take out of your uterus and test it for genetic abnormalities or just try to figure out what happened. And so they did that. And so then I get another call back from my doctor and he said, um, oh, you've had something called a partial molar pregnancy, which essentially means that there were too many chromosomes. So either two sperm fertilized one egg or there was some kind of division, but there were genetically, it was not viable. So what my body did was the right thing, um, which was to expel um, the baby or, or end the pregnancy. But my mind couldn't catch up with that. And then in addition to that, because when you have too many chromosomes, um, it actually is carcinogenic. And so then um, doctors will tell you that you need to wait a period of time. So in my case, it was six months where we weren't allowed to try. And I had to go every month to make sure my 
HCG levels were decreasing um, to ensure that there was no more um, pregnancy material in my body because that, if any were to remain, it could um, actually cause cancer. And so now I'm told, okay, you've had, you know, fetal demise and you are not allowed to try. And there's this possibility that you might have cancer if any material remains. And so it's just, it was like doom and gloom and more gloom. And then my career wasn't doing very well. I was an educator at the time and I wasn't able to land a contract in a school. So I was just kind of TOCing, substitute teaching here and there. And it was difficult. And so then we didn't try, we didn't try. And then um, I guess we were given the go ahead in June to try. And my husband and I were cautious. And I, I think I would characterize that as like a downtime in my life where, you know, I didn't really know what was going on. It was just a time where life and time passed, but I wasn't really there or present. Um, and then we, I took my husband out for his birthday and I believe that's the time we conceived my older daughter and I was pregnant, but I ignored the pregnancy because I didn't believe it to be true. Um, because my experience had told me that it's not true. Um, and so we didn't tell anybody, we didn't talk about it. I ignored the pregnancy. Um, around 12 weeks, um, we went in to see my family doctor and he wasn't there with somebody else. And he said, well, should we listen? And I'm like, oh, like, I don't know. I don't know if we should do this. Like, is it safe? Is everything going to be okay? And it was an incredible feeling to hear the heartbeat for the very first time after the third time of, of trying. And so then we had a healthy baby, but my delivery was really um, traumatic. And, it, and um, there were so many things that went wrong with the delivery. And as a result, I was told I was rendered infertile. And I didn't find that out right away. We tried for a couple years um, after we had my daughter and we weren't getting pregnant. And I ran into my OB on the street and she said, come in, I thought you were gonna have lots of babies, so come see me. And she gave me a referral to a clinic and the clinic told me um, because of your delivery and you had an infection, uh, we believe one of your fallopian tubes was blocked and the other one is probably not working, which is why you're not conceiving. So then we went into the road, down the road of infertility. Um, and so we had to do a lot of tests and be very, very patient. And um, we had to do IVF because that was our best bet because history had told us every time we tried, we got pregnant, whether we had a miscarriage or we had a live baby. But and then after that, we were trying and trying and trying and we weren't getting pregnant. So we decided to do IVF and we got pregnant on the very first try. Um, but I started bleeding and I continued to bleed. And this wasn't just regular bleeding. This was, I was almost passing out with the amount that I was bleeding. There were massive clots. Sorry, that's too much information. And it was, it, it was painful in the sense that Every time I didn't know if I was losing my baby or not. And I was a frequent flyer as they call it at the hospital. And I kept going in and, and they kept telling me, no, your baby is fine. You're just, we think it's a subchorionic hematoma. So what I found out also, which is very normal in pregnancy um, is bleeding. So most pregnancies will have some kind of bleeding. Um, and it's only when it's excessive, like mine was that it could be problematic. 
So they said the bleeding should stop around 13 weeks or so. Um, and it did. And then it started up again around 16 weeks and it continued to get worse. And when I had my 20 week scan, they found my cervix to be very short. So I ended up um, having a placental abruption and giving birth to a baby girl. Her name is Noor Jahan. And she was 21 weeks and three days. And she was super cute and really tiny. She had all her fingers and toes and all of her body parts. She had lots of hair and um, she had a cute little belly button and the ridge above her upper lip was the same as my daughter's. She looked like my daughter too, um, but she was just too small. And they don't, um, it's, it's just a real experience to go through delivering a baby when nobody's concentrating on the baby's heart rate. Normally when you're in delivery, the focus is very much on how is the baby doing? They're checking every 20 minutes, but nobody cared to listen. And that was difficult. Um, and I know I asked to listen to her heartbeat. I know that about an hour before I delivered her, she was still, her heart was still beating, but she must have passed before I delivered her. And so when you, when you have a stillbirth or you give birth after 20 weeks, you actually go through labor. Um, and so I had an epidural and um, I delivered her vaginally, but I lost, because I was bleeding so much, I lost so much blood. Um, it was a really um, precarious situation for me as well. And after I delivered her, I got to hold her. And um, there's a, a lovely gentleman who works at the hospital. Actually, he's not employed by the hospital, but he comes in and he offers to take photos of you with your baby as a memory. And so I did that. And um, the hospital staff took um, Noor Jahan's footprints and handprints. And they wrote a little card about her um, height and her weight and every and they gave me a keepsake box which was really nice and we still have that and then um, we ended up having a, a funeral I remember it being really hard to leave the hospital because I didn't want to leave her and I knew that I was never going to see her again. and so it was really hard to leave the hospital and and other people were coming in with flowers and balloons. And I could see all of that, but no one came in to celebrate me and my baby. And that was really hard. And uh, and the, the date of her passing actually is at the end of this month. So August is generally hard for me. And this year it's five years, but uh, um, eventually I left the hospital and we waited some time because it took a little bit of time to arrange a baby casket. They're tiny, very, very tiny. And we had a funeral um, and our close family came and uh, we originally planned to do a closed casket, casket, but we did an open casket so our family could see her and she was still so cute. And um, what I didn't anticipate was that when we did open casket, I got to see her again. And when I looked at her, um, my breast swelled with milk and I started to leak milk. And so no one talks about when you deliver a baby that your body still thinks that there's a baby to feed. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
at the time I didn't think about donation. Nobody talked about donating the milk. I just, I wanted it to go away so that I could forget that it happened. So I tried all kinds of concoctions, like putting cabbage in my bra so that I could dry up my milk. It was, I stunk. It was terrible. <laughs> it was not a good idea. Um, but I just, I wanted it to go away. And, um, and I think I was in a grief fog for months afterwards. I made all kinds of mistakes, including trying to fill diesel gas in my husband's sports car, um, which is, you can't do. And thank God the nozzles are different sizes because I wasn't able to be successful, but I was just making mistakes and I was moving through life. And I couldn't tell you what I did during that time. And it was hard for my older daughter too, because she really wanted um, a younger sister. And I had felt that she should see um, her in the hospital, but my husband didn't, and I didn't fight him. And to this day, she says, you know, you didn't let me see my sister, but then she saw her at the funeral. So I can rest that she actually did see her sister, but she really struggled. And for children, they need to talk about things. So she talked a lot at school about what had happened. And that was difficult for some of her peers, um, but her school was so understanding. And they said, you know, we'll never tell her to stop talking because that's how she's processing. And we did um, some play therapy for her, um, but she, she seemed to really um, cope by, sharing about it and telling my my parents that no you have two grandkids um, and correcting people and telling people that oh my mommy had two has two babies and she kept and still continues to keep Noor Jahan alive in our house so she's now taught her little brother and her little sister about her and um, you know we always pray and we go to um, the cemetery every August and this year we did a nice little ceremony with another family who lost their baby. And um, we just got together and um, connected over our babies at the cemetery. So that was nice because it's five years. So um, I think having my daughter actually helped, my older daughter helped um, all of us grieve because she, she said, oh, you know, when we're baking, we put Noor Jahan's love into our baking and she pulls it out of the air and throws it into um, whatever we bake. And, I feel like that helped me on a regular basis because she's not forgotten. She's still there, but it's just different. So that's the story. I know it wasn't very short. Oh gosh, no, that was just so beautiful. And I was listening to every single word you were saying, and thank you for being so open and vulnerable. And I know that there are a lot of people who will be able to connect with your story. So it's one that is very um, important to share for you for yourself, but also for others to hear as well. So thank you so much for sharing this with us. And I'm just so um, I, I mean, I knew some of these details, but I didn't know all of these details. And um, Natasha and I are really good friends. And just seeing you, like you are just so incredibly humble. You are so positive. And the energy you bring out to the world is, is infectious. So I just want you to know that and to know 
how special you are and for you to have gone through this and to come out from it on the other end so beautifully is very honorable. Thank you. So, <laughs> so you did mention now you went through miscarriage and infant loss. And I know that that um, distinction can be a little bit blurred for a lot of people. So if you could just describe what miscarriage is compared to infant loss. So typically miscarriage is um, the end of a um, fetus um, between zero and 19 weeks of gestation. Um, there is a bit of a gray area between 16 and 20 weeks, but that's still considered miscarriage. And then at 20 weeks gestation, it's considered infant loss. Um, and up to 20 weeks, um, generally, um, there's no delivery. Um, they call, like when it's later, they call it a DE. Um, uh, and it's uh, dilation and excavation, which is a terrible term, um, but that's and there's very few uh, doctors that do that in BC. Um, and so that's the difference between the two. And miscarriage is really common. It's very common up until about 13 weeks gestation. Um, the number is when I had my miscarriage, it was one in five. And now people, um, doctors are reporting it's closer to one in four of all pregnancies. So whether it's your first or your 10th, the stats are the same and that's of preg of miscarriages that are reported so this doesn't count for people whose um, periods are late um, and they don't know and they've just kind of had um, a miscarriage uh, later and and they're not aware of it so the number could be even higher and what about the uh, physical symptoms? So I know you mentioned the bleeding, but are there physical symptoms that are different from uh, the miscarriage and stillbirth in your body? Um, so I think everybody's body uh, responds differently. Um, some people will cramp and some people won't. Some people will have a miscarriage pass very easily um, and others will experience a lot of bleeding and a lot of pain. Um, I don't think that there's one way. I, I do know that um, with infant loss, you actually go through contractions and labor. Um, you can get an epidural if you choose. Um, it's, it's different in the sense that it's a process and it takes time, but you're, there's a focused process. Whereas with miscarriage, you have options. So you can do a chemical um, uh, ending to the pregnancy, you can um, have a DNC, a dilation and curatage, um, or you can allow it to pass naturally. So there's, there's still, they're both a process, but different. I don't know about the pain or how it feels. I think that would be personal. And I, I'm assuming with the infant loss, there's more postpartum symptoms as well, right? With the milk coming in and mm -hmm. um, going through all of that, just as delivering a baby you would go through. Yeah. So there's, um, there's the symptoms of milk, they're coming in, your uterus contracting, postpartum hair loss, mm -hmm. um, you, your body is pregnant. And so eventually, you know, 
Um, you still have to do your Kegels and, you know, your, your body then eventually loses the, the weight. Um, in terms of benefits, you can go on maternity leave, but you do not get, which is about 15 or 17 weeks, but you don't get parental leave. Um, and what they tell you is because there's no baby to look after, which is also really horrifying, but true. So if you needed to take longer from an emotional perspective um, and you can't afford to, you can't. There's so many layers to your story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I'm so amazed at the triumph that you've come through all of this and to, to be able to help other women in your practice with this exact this exact topic. It's, it's really amazing. So thank you so much. I want to go back to when you experienced that first, um, that first time that you were miscarrying the baby and you had to go through the Christmas holidays and all that kind of stuff. So the family, usually families don't know in the first trimester, it's not shared with the family or friends, because we're taught to, you know, wait until the end of the first trimester. So what were some of the feelings that you experienced during that time? uh, With like not being able to tell people or to tell the family that you were actually pregnant? I, I personally felt really isolated and alone. And, um, I, I, I thought there was something wrong with me and wrong with my body. Mm-hmm. And um, it, yeah, I think I was just really lonely. And, and my, my partner is amazing, but his body wasn't going through all of that. And so as awesome as he is, he, he didn't quite get it. And I don't think anybody else gets it until they go through it. And then once I was able to share I can't tell you how many women approached me and said, I've had four miscarriages. I've had this miscarriage and I miscarried then, or I miscarried, you know, 20 years ago, like women of all ages came to tell me about their miscarriage. And I thought, wow, like how strong are we as women to go through that silently without talking about it with anyone. And then we just kind of go through it. And women are incredible. That, and um, and then I, I realized how how common it is, and that was surprising. So I think for me, I was just lonely and isolated. And it could also bring up so many feelings of obviously guilt and disappointment and frustration mm-hmm. going through the process of getting pregnant again. And there's so many myths, like women feel like they did something wrong. Oh, maybe I lifted this box, it was too heavy, or you know, there's so many myths around why uh, the miscarriage happened. So women feel these, like they almost blame themselves. And what do you, what would you say to a woman who, who feels that blame on herself? Oh, it's so hard. Um, I, I would, I would say that, you know, you're actually, your body is doing the right thing. Like literally, a million different things have to go right for a baby to be born. So each of us are miracles because we are here on this earth and your body was doing the right thing. And 
if a pregnancy was not going to be viable, then we need to rest and trust in our body that it was doing what was best. And even though that's hard, I would say trust your body, thank your body for doing what's right and rest in the science. So I'm, I used to teach biology. So for me, it was easier to understand the science aspect of things. And it, you know, as human beings, we want to find a reason. Is it that we worked out or is it that we didn't keep our legs up after we had intercourse for, you know, 20 minutes or whatever? Or is it that I ran around with my other kids or I lifted boxes or I worked too hard or I had a glass of wine or I did this? We want to find a million reasons to explain it so that we can feel better about it. But the thing is, is that we, don't, we may not ever know the reason and, and it happened and it's not the woman's fault. I always tell her that she is not to blame. She is not alone and she's not to blame. And it's a process and it takes time. Mm-hmm. I think that's so beautiful. And just letting women know that it's not their fault, right? Mm-hmm. That they're not alone. Because mm-hmm. I feel like there is still, um, you know, we live in a world where things are very open and we feel like it's okay to share, but there's still quite a lot of stigma around it. And there's quite a stigma around um, cultural societies as well, within cultural societies, I should say. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that stigma is around that blame, right? That the mother um, is afraid she's going to get, right? That was it my habits? What if someone thinks it was my habits? But it's not, right? It's Mm -hmm. not the mother's fault. And I think just by you saying that you are not alone, it is not your fault, and you are supported is going to help a lot of people feel peace and calm within themselves. And that aspect of teaching women or, or just giving them that concept that their bodies are amazing and doing the right things. Mm-hmm. Our bodies work so perfectly. They're fascinating. The fact that we can get pregnant, have a baby, but the fact that our body knows when it's not a viable pregnancy, that it's not a good idea to move forward. So it's just letting women know that they are fascinating and the way that their bodies work and to trust the process and to have that self-compassion is so important. Mm-hmm. And speaking of self-compassion, what are some things that you did that worked for you? And what are some things that you speak to with other clients that you have found works for other clients as well? So in dealing with loss, I think it's, um, I, I kept this mantra in my head, which um, goes shared pain is lessened while shared joy is increased. And so um, I encourage clients to share what's happening for them um, because the second that you say it to somebody else, the load is lighter. And it doesn't mean that you are burdening other people or you're laying your burden on others. It just means that you're sharing the grief around or the loss around a little bit. And it makes it easier to bear. So share the loss is um, one thing. Um, I encourage people to continue doing something that um, reminds them of who they are. So not losing yourself in the process. 
So for me, um, when we lost Norjahan, I went headfirst into exercise and really re-strengthening my body. Um, and so I felt that that was good for me. I also did a lot of meditation and prayer. And um, I just surrounded myself with people that I knew could support me and be there for me. Um, there were a couple friends that were really instrumental in my healing. And that was really helpful. So just finding a way to share with them. So I, I talked to my partner a lot as well about, okay, what are we comfortable sharing? How can we, what are the words that we want to use? Do we want to say her name? And I try to use Nur Jahan's name often because I don't get to use it all the time. It's not like I get to call her and, you know, like I don't have her running around. So every time I get to say her name, I honor her in that way. So I also encourage women to find a way to honor their loss. So whether that's um, by naming their baby, um, having a goodbye ceremony, having a way to honor their baby every year, including family in that. Um, we, we, get a, we got a Christmas ornament for our daughter. We um, go to the cemetery every year. Um, we pray every, every time that we go to our place of worship, we pray for her um, soul. We think about her, as I said, in our baking, we're throwing her love in and we just find ways to honor her regularly because she is a part of our lives. And then um, I encourage um, women to figure out how they want to share the loss with people who are not in their circle. So often people will say, oh, so how many children do you have? And it's like, oh, okay, how do I answer that? How do I be authentic? And, but without opening my heart to the stranger. And so for me, um, I'll say, oh, I have three babies, earth side and one in heaven. Or I'll, sometimes I won't say it at all, but in my heart, I say, don't worry, Nurji, I got you. I know I had you. And so I, it just, it depends on every individual, but I encourage women to think about how they want to share their loss with other people. And so I hope that answers your question. I don't know. Mm -hmm. if you want yeah, no, I, those are, <laughs> those are beautiful answers. And um, I think those are really great suggestions and really good strategies that people, that women can use um, when mm -hmm. they are dealing with this loss. And you mentioned as well that with your older daughter, she also is part of the family and she experienced this loss as well. How did she process this loss? And I know you mentioned that she um, honored Nur Jahan, you know, and she continues to do so. But what else did she do to process this? Uh, she talked about her a lot and she was trying to understand. So in the beginning days, she would ask, Mommy, how come Nur Jahan died? And I would say, Oh, she came too soon. She, and she would say, why did you let her come so early, mommy? Why did you, why did you have her so early? And then it, it was blaming. And I'm like, oh, how do I deal with this? Because I don't want her to blame me. And then I was also triggered because I didn't want to feel like it was my fault because I knew it wasn't my fault, but it's difficult when a little person is suggesting that. Um, so we just kept talking about it. We, um, we would say a prayer. We, um, I allowed her to 
speak about Norjahan as often and as much as she needed to. Because with children, their way of processing, if they say things to you a thousand times, it's because that's how many times they need to say it to get it or understand it. We also um, found a really good play therapist and we took her um, to see the therapist so that she could, um, I guess, go through the loss with somebody who wasn't her family member who could um, have her express it in another way with play therapy. So she used a sand tray a lot. She used um, a playhouse. And um, the person that we went to said, you know, she's really coping well. She's doing great because she's talking about it. So keep encouraging her to talk about it. And so we communicated with her school and um, they allowed her to talk about it. And she still brings it up. And so, you know, at the start of every school year, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious. I'm, I'm wondering, okay, do I need to tell the yeah. teacher that my daughter might bring up this baby that died? And, you know, are they going to think, what are they going to think? And so now I just let it come up. And if they ask me about it, I tell them, but I don't always, I don't preempt it now because I don't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't believe her, they don't believe her. And if they do great, you know, and if they want to ask about it, they can. And some teachers do, they'll say, you know, we, we heard that there was a baby that passed away and then they ask about it and we talk about it. Mm-hmm. So and how old was, shares. how old was your daughter when Noor Jahan passed away? Four. She was four. Such mm-hmm. a delicate age. Yeah. 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 So how did it affect your relationship with her as a mom? And then how did it, how did this infant loss affect your relationship with your partner? I mean, you've been through so many layers with your Mm -hmm. fertility journey. And so how did your relationship get affected throughout the process? So um, so the way that my relationship changed with my daughter, um, I would say in the beginning when we lost Noor Jahan, I, I wasn't really a mom to, to Leah anymore. I just kind of went through the motions, but I wasn't really there. And I think probably that was a bit damaging for her, but I think I was just coping the best way that I could. Um, and then I think I kind of realized that even though I wasn't going to be able to parent Noor Jahan, I still had another child to parent. Um, but that didn't, that realization didn't come until about four or five months after. I know that sounds terrible, but that was the way I, I went through things. And so my relationship with Talia changed in the sense that um, there was strain and then there was a lot of love and compassion and, that, and gratitude for me because she helped me continue to honor Noor Jahan and she reminded me of ways to remember her. And she reminded my family members of ways to remember her. I remember her correcting my dad when he said, oh, I have two, I only have one grandchild. And he said, no, Nana, you have two. Remember, Norji, she's dead. And my dad was just, I mean, he didn't know what to say. And he had tears. But I think she, she rounded everybody up. Mm-hmm. And her and I started doing dates. A little bit more and so that was really nice in our relationship in terms of my husband I think that loss or any big 
um, traumatic events that occur in a relationship ha have the ability to make the relationship or break the relationship. And in our case, it really made our relationship um, better. I, it sounds crazy, but we, we got through it together. We leaned on each other. We talked about things together and our strongest bond is our faith. And so for both of us, um, prayer and talking about our faith and the faith-based aspect of what happened um, was very helpful. And so there were times where it was difficult and I was mad at him and I'm sure he was mad at me, but we always came back to doing this, um, connecting and bonding over the loss together and we faced it together. Um, and a vision for me is just the two of us side by side walking together forward, um, holding hands. And it helped that we went through the process of a funeral because I got to see him in our culture, only men carry the casket or touch the casket. And I got to watch him hold the casket and, and lower it into the ground. And that to me was powerful and strengthening as well um, and anytime that we struggled we just came back to each other we always talked to each other and we shared and I think he knows that August is tough for me and I think it's tough for him too and we just we connect as opposed to separating and I think couples need to make a choice when they have a miscarriage or a stillbirth or when they go through infertility they have a choice whether they want to do that together and really include each other or not and some couples will do it a lot and some people won't and it just has to be whatever works for them such beautiful information I'm so grateful for you to share all this with us like amazing strategies and just so enlightening. And of course, going through the process together with your partner, uh, becoming the mom that that your child deserved after the the loss, like there's so much and the fact that you were able to process it all and move forward. Uh, it's it's incredible. I, I love everything you've shared with us today. Um, what about couples who want to conceive after infant loss is that usually common or is it something that couples you know shy away from after what what's what do you usually see in your practice I see a lot of fear and anxiety and I experience the same um I I just encourage couples to seek help I think therapy is really good I think focusing on um, the positive milestones in the sequential pregnancy is important and just sharing that it's difficult and having, you know, key people check in. Lots of couples do try again and some couples don't. Some couples decide that that's it for them and that's their choice. There's no right or wrong way of going about it. Um, but I, but generally um, the risk for postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety um, are higher with women who have experienced miscarriage and, and stillbirth and infertility, just because um, there's so many more layers to um, their journey. 
And so it's important that they seek support and um, they find ways to cope with the anxiety of having a child after um, a loss. That's mm-hmm. just, it's so, it's so eye-opening what you've shared today and just so touching and so not just informative, but just very inspiring. Your story is absolutely inspiring. And how um, I'm really, my mind is really connected to the point of how you said you have also connected with other families, and how you have been brought together by similar experiences and have connected with them to share um, both the grief and the joy that your babies have brought to you. And I think that is just so, so beautiful. Yeah, you need, all moms need a tribe, right? And if there's somebody else who's experienced what you have, then all the feelings that you have, you can text them and say, how are you feeling this today? Or how is the loss this year? And um, it's helpful to have that support of someone who's been through what you've been through. Yeah. Not exactly the same, but very, very similar. And that validation, I think, is also just um, really important as well. Mm-hmm. And Natasha, I know you work with a lot of moms who um, have experienced miscarriage and infant loss. And so what is one thing that you would say to them right now, someone who has recently experienced a miscarriage or infant loss? The first thing is you're not alone. Um, it's not your fault. And um, you, can, you can get through this. Um, just one foot in front of the other. Just be in, in the moment that you are and trust. And, um, and I'm here for you. <laughs> you yes. know, yeah, exactly. And where can people find you? Um, they can find me at www.loveN, the letter N, light.ca, um, Love and Light Counseling. Um, they can email me. They can call me. I'd love to support them any way I can. And your Instagram Service. handle? My Instagram handle is Natasha Varani. Okay. And your last name is spelled? V-I-R-A-N-I. Thank you so much for being with us today, Natasha. This was such a powerful episode and we're so happy to have you here to share all this information and to share your personal experience. It's, it's really blown me away and touched me on so many levels. So thank you so much. I love that quote, which I would love to reiterate here where you said shared pain is lessened while shared joy is increased. And that is such a beautiful takeaway from today's episode. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Natasha, for joining us. And for all of you for listening to the I Am Mom podcast. Thank you for joining us on the I Am Mom parenting journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow us and head on over to iTunes to leave us a review. We invite you to check out the show notes for this episode and click on the link to join our free Facebook community to stay connected and continue the conversation with other like-minded moms. 
Until next time, stay inspired, take action, and create magic.